0: Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we talk with former San Francisco DA, Chase Boudin, founding executive director of the newly created Criminal Law and Justice Center at UC Berkeley School of Law. In our conversation, we explore how Boudin's experiences as a child have informed his approach to criminal justice and his efforts to seek reforms to how we engage with both the accused and the victims of crime. We also discuss the importance of communicating, both providing data and sharing stories to help people understand context and demand policies that keep us all safer. And we touch on the challenges of actually implementing change in the face of the status quo part one, Boudin reminded us all to examine our own definitions of safety.
1: Really at the heart of a lot of the debates we have locally and nationally is this question of safety for who and what is safe. Um, you know, for me, I think in an ideal world, we would live in a society where people don't have to have fear that they would be personally harmed physically or that their property would be harmed.
0: He also cautioned against the continued development of two systems of justice in the
1: I think it's a a system of laws, and I think the rule of law is a delicate and fragile thing. And if we start having two systems, you know, one for the rich and powerful, one for the police, and one for everybody else, I think we do real damage to the rule of law. I think we undermine the notion of justice. There are countless policies uh, and practices that I could give you examples of that are blatantly discriminatory, you know, and uh, I think when when we see that, when we see uh, police getting away with murder or when we see corrupt politicians uh, getting away with embezzlement or um, you know any number of other things that we know are sadly commonplace in this country and the city. You know, I think that does real damage to the rule of law and it undermines you know, the sense of justice.
0: In his new role, Boudin hopes to utilize both research and practice to encourage implementing changes that can actually help people.
1: You know, I grew up visiting my own parents in prison and it's meant for me that every every day of my life I'm thinking about and aware of and cherishing my own freedom as well as impacted by the shortcomings of the way that this country approaches crime and punishment, I think we can all agree that regardless of our politics or our priorities, that we all deserve to live in safe communities and that our country should continue to strive to live up to the really lofty goals that many of our Founding Fathers set forth in terms of equal justice under law, in terms of having an independent, neutral judiciary that meets out justice, and in terms of having a system of justice we can call just. And we've got a lot of work to do if we're going to achieve those goals. I think our our current approach is failing. It's failing to rehabilitate people. It's failing to keep communities safe or to meaningfully support victims who've been harmed by crime and violence and it's also bankrupting state and local governments starving them of the resources that are necessary to actually prevent crime to build the kind of vibrant communities that i want to raise my son
0: and he acknowledges that fear can hinder efforts to make change
1: anybody who has been a victim of crime anybody who is concerned about being a victim of crime has a certain level of fear and fear can sometimes make us uh, act in ways that are irrational it can make us Uh, react and rather than respond and it can also um, lead to what we call fear-mongering and I think what we're seeing again across the country in every jurisdiction where whether it's a district attorney or whether it's a mayor whether it's a board of supervisors uh, a police commission that's saying hey we can do better we need more metrics we need more accountability Um, let's look at data what we're seeing is police unions often uh, correctional officer unions sometimes local media, sometimes other elected officials, um, responding in ways that are are really based on fear, not on data.
0: But Boudin stressed the importance of looking at how fear-based approaches actually work or don't work, as well as the need to be intentional about the choices and investments we make.
1: So much of lawmaking and and legal teaching is often divorced from real-world experience. And I wanna bring all of the lived experience, all of the practical experience that I had in my lifetime Um, I want to bring that lens to the research we do, to the teaching, and what we're going to do at the center is three things. We're going to research, we're going to educate, and we're going to advocate. But at core, we're going to dig in on um, what sorts of policies can um, make us safer, what are more effective ways to invest tax dollars that are being dedicated to public safety, Um, what are ways that we can expand access to justice and enhance the integrity of law enforcement so that people trust the system when they need to ask for help or have a loved one being processed through the system. Um, We're gonna educate the next generation of lawyers and we're gonna advocate for policies that make our communities safer, more just places to live.
0: Boudin also shared how visiting his parents in prison as a child informed his worldview and his work today.
1: Arresting people who are addicted to drugs is not a gray area. That's an area where we have decades worth of, and, I, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, that it's okay or we should simply throw our hands up and do nothing about open air drug use. I am saying using the police as a frontline response to a public health crisis has been tried in cities across the world for decades, and we know what the results are. The results are abysmal, they're inhuman, they're expensive, and they distract police from doing the critical work that they are uniquely suited to do, responding to violent crime and progress. So from my perspective, um, these are choices. These are choices in the short, medium and long term about where to invest money. And there's been a very intentional decision in San Francisco and other cities across the country not to invest in drug treatment, not to invest in housing for people who are unhoused, not to have adequate shelter beds or mental health treatment beds. Those are things that, yes, can't happen overnight. But you know what? You can't have enough police to arrest every drug user in the Tenderloin overnight either. That is also a long-term investment.
0: This is part two of my interview with Chase Boudin. You can hear part one at newsincontext.net. Up earlier your your experience with your family with your dad and you did invite me to to inquire further and i would like to because i know that that probably shaped a lot of i mean it clearly shaped a lot of how you view these things so if you're willing to share anything about your um your orientation to your family's experience with incarceration and how you experienced that um, and and how that framed you yeah you know
1: when, when i was 14 months old my parents left me at the babysitter and they never came back to get me Um, I don't remember that day. I don't remember getting picked up by my, you know, my grandparents, but my earliest memories are going to visit my parents in prison, waiting in line at metal detectors and getting processed through steel gates. And I, I remember from a very early age noticing that most of the people in those lines were women and children of color and starting to come to terms with the way that race manifests in criminal justice enforcement and with what it meant to have the kind of privileges and opportunities that came not only with being a white male, but also with um, having landed very fortuitously in a stable middle class family. Um, And I saw that play out in the lives of my friends, friends whose mothers were incarcerated with my mother, who had all of the intelligence and the charisma. And the, the, the energy and the compassion that I could have ever asked for, but who didn't have the same second chances and the same opportunities that I had. And some of those kids ended up incarcerated. At least one ended up on my father's cell block. So um, growing up, watching the odds play out in those ways uh, made me really grapple with the Shortcomings of our criminal justice system, with our approach to crime and safety and punishment, seeing recidivism—people get out and come right back in—seeing the intergenerational cycle of incarceration, and realizing that sometimes we successfully punish people, but we actually undermine safety in the process. Um, all of that made me um, kind of start studying from an early age the uniquely punitive approach to um, to justice in this country, and it also made me learn and study. What's become called mass incarceration. I, I learned, for example, that the United States leads the world in locking people up. That we have more people per capita and, as a pers- and and in raw numbers, incarcerated on any given day than any other country in the world. And that's that's not something we should be proud of, right? That's not you know we're not safer because of it. We're not uh, happier because of it. We're not more prosperous because of it. And so when I went to law school. I really was excited to do work to fight against mass incarceration, to build out alternatives to incarceration, to find ways to be less punitive and Mm -hmm. more holistic in our efforts to heal. And um, that's why I became a public defender. But I saw through my work as a public defender the everyday injustices, things like money bail or immigration detainers, things that directly undermine any notion of equal justice under law that are built into our system. And I started doing more and more policy work. Um, And I realized that there were... Really, better vehicles for that policy work than having a caseload full of individual clients, and that's why I ran for district attorney and and won, and that's why I did so much policy work and made so many efforts to think outside the box about how to invest in victim services. We had a historic expansion of victim services when I was in office, and you know a lot of people will say, "Well, your parents were were convicted of serious crimes." There were people who were killed in their case. You don't care about victims, you care about your parents and you care about criminals. And I say, actually, no, one of the lessons I learned was how unfair it is that the state was willing to invest literally infinite resources in punishing, how many life sentences, in punishing the people who committed those crimes. But what was there to support the victims and their families? Nothing, nothing other than whatever shallow satisfaction people can derive from vengeance. And I really believe, yes, there's a role for punishment, absolutely, Um, in terms of deterrence, in terms of, you know, having a sense of um, proportionality when serious crimes are, are committed. We need serious consequences. And yes, also, we must demand that we don't just talk about victims' rights when it comes to sentencing, that victims' rights also takes... A priority role when it comes to allocating local budgets and state budgets, that we're investing in healthcare and psychiatry, therapy for people, housing, educational support for people who've lost income due to injuries or, or homicides. We're not doing that. and And I think it's really outrageous to see so many supposedly tough on crime folks use the pain and suffering of victims to justify harsher punishments without any investment in actual services or supports. That's a lesson I learned from decades of visiting prisons and seeing the politics of, of incarceration play out.
0: That's huge. And I was going to ask you to, to define victims' rights, but you did. You talked about services, compensation and psychological services and things like that, that victims do need. And and it is fascinating that we accept and I, I think about my own um, biases and my own orientation to this. We accept the idea of, oh, conviction is going to be what victims need, right? And clearly we need so much more.
1: Part of the problem is we don't offer victims much else in this country. You know, we just don't. And and, and that has to change. That's why, look, I'll give you a couple of concrete examples of things we did, right? Ranging from, you know, petty, violent, uh, nonviolent crime, all the way up to, to very serious violent crime that we did in my office as district attorney. So, We realized that during the pandemic, a lot of small businesses were having their storefronts vandalized, their windows broken, graffiti. And it was really difficult for them, particularly during the pandemic, didn't have a lot of revenue. They were now dealing with these extra costs. And so we launched a pilot project in San Francisco where we um, had the city reimburse out-of-pocket insurance deductibles to cover, I think it was up to $1,000. Uh, for each small business. You know, wasn't for big fancy chains. It was for local local owned businesses. Um, that's an example where even in those cases where as in the majority of vandalisms and broken windows, the police never make an arrest. So if all we're offering victims is punishment, guess what? 98% of victims who have their car window broken or their storefront window broken, police aren't making arrests. There's nobody for the DA to prosecute, even if that's what we want. So by saying, look... We recognize this is a problem, and it's a problem that our current investment in policing can't solve. And even if it does, securing a conviction doesn't fix your broken window. So we're gonna put our money where our mouth is when it comes to victims. We created that pilot, wildly popular, spread citywide because it was so popular. You know, we we made a similar proposal um, with other areas of crime In, in domestic violence during the pandemic. We recognize that survivors of domestic violence were being forced to shelter in place With their abusers. Yes,
0: exactly. Not okay.
1: And so we partnered with Airbnb and with the governor's office and a number of local uh, real estate companies to take available housing stock and offer it on a short, medium, and long-term basis to survivors of domestic violence and their children. We partnered with Lyft to get people transportation um, away from abusers or to a hospital if they needed treatment or to have a rape kit conducted. Those are the kinds of basic services that literally aren't being offered in most jurisdictions. Meanwhile, by contrast to what we were doing in my um, progressive, so-called progressive prosecutor office, that tough-on-crime prosecutors around the country use what are called material victim statutes to jail victims of crime, to literally jail them, victims of domestic violence, survivors of sexual assault. Why? So that they'll be available to testify whenever the court case gets called. Wow. Is that lawful? Not only is it lawful, but it's done on a regular basis. Well, in In my administration, we said we actually care about victims and we're not going to put them in jail. If they refuse to cooperate with us, even after they've been subpoenaed, that's their choice. That's their choice. They were the victim. And as much as we want to hold people accountable when they've caused harm, we're not going to jail victims and witnesses in order to secure convictions. That's just a couple examples. I could tell you dozens more of proactive ways that my office actually sought to provide meaningful services, language access, right? Um, Burial and funeral expenses for victims of violent crime. Things that are concrete and that are simply being overlooked and ignored by supposedly tough on crime prosecutors.
0: So what you're doing resonates. Then it becomes sharing the story so people understand and can get on board. Clearly someone like me who's center to left is gonna connect with these ideas and approaches but what about someone on the more conservative part of the spectrum?
1: We absolutely wanna engage people of all political spectrums. We want a big tent. And, and I think we start with the, with the basics, things we can all agree on, right? We all want safety. We all don't like crime. We all believe there should be accountability for people who commit crimes, whether they're unhoused, whether they're mentally ill, whether they're police officers wearing a uniform. Anybody who commits a crime should have consequences. And we need a system of justice in which those consequences don't depend on the color of your skin or how much money you have in the bank. And and I think those are things we can all agree on, right? Because if we don't have those things, then we're not safe and we're not just. Um, now where I think it starts to break down is what are the policies and practices? What are the tax dollar investments that are going to get us there? Um, and that's where I think there's a lot of noise that has to be cut through. So let's take an issue that um, is one I've done a lot of work on. One of the, Policies I'm proudest of that we implemented um, right away when I took office, which is kind of a hot topic around the country, bail reform. I would ask, do you believe in the presumption of innocence? I think that's a fundamental principle this country was founded on. Our founding fathers recognized the need to protect individual liberty from the intrusion of the state. And one of the ways they did that was a presumption of innocence. And I think we all, all of us who actually care about democracy and, and freedom have to recognize the need for some kind of process. It's not just being arrested and then you go off to the gulag, right?
0: You're listening to News In Context, I'm Gina Baleria. We are talking with former San Francisco DA, Chesa Boudin, founding executive director of the newly created criminal law and justice center at UC Berkeley School of Law.
1: So if you believe in the presumption of innocence, and if then another fundamental principle of this country is that you can't be jailed for being poor, right? We don't have debtors prisons in this country. if if you believe that being poor is not a crime, that people have a right to try to work their way up by their bootstraps, to maybe be born poor, but at some point become rich, right? The, the American dream. Then you have to accept that it's unconstitutional and unjust to jail people based on their poverty, which is exactly what money bail does. And if you say, well, okay, but we have to have trade-offs for safety, I think that's a reasonable question to raise. And, and to that, I would say, well, It doesn't make us safer to have people who have been accused of very serious crimes, let's take an attempted murder, who happen to have access to money, be able to buy their way out of jail. I've seen people who are accused of attempted murder with assault rifles literally buy their way out of jail. In fact, California's victims' rights law, the Bill of Rights in California for Victims called Marcy's Law, was named after a young woman whose murderer bailed out of jail because he was rich and showed up uninvited and in violation of court orders at her funeral. Oh God. Allowing wealthy people who are dangerous to buy their way out simply because of their wealth does not make us safer. It makes us less safe. And that's why we should have a system of pretrial detention that is based on a presumption of innocence and risk assessment, not wealth assessment. So I think we can all agree. We don't want dangerous people who are likely to go commit new crimes to get out of jail pending trial. And we can also all agree we don't want parents who are not dangerous or working families who are not dangerous to be torn apart simply because they can't come up with a few hundred dollars to make bail. It undermines justice. It undermines safety.
0: So what do we do about all this? How do we begin to solve it?
1: You know, I think we have to take each issue um, and each policy and we have to look at data and we have to look at the way the law works. And we have to go step-by-step step with people who may have different views because ultimately we all want and we all deserve the same things, safety and justice.
0: Yeah. You know, you, you did mention this and I don't want to give it short shrift. So I do want to kind of name it intentionally. Um, sometimes the the racial or gender components that that – Play into some of the ways that uh, the United States or local communities approach uh, public safety. You mentioned also, uh, obviously, when you were growing up, and that you really noticed this. and And ha- how might you have noticed it in your time as DA um, or in in your work thus far? One of the things
1: I learned, both personally visiting jails and prisons my whole life, and being a public defender, and you know the practical experience of being in the courtroom, both as a public defender and running the district attorney's office is that for far too long, the criminal legal system has been a dumping ground for other social problems. And you know that's tr- true with regard to poverty, homelessness, addiction, all kinds of issues, right? And one of the ways that manifests when we talk about race is that the criminal legal system amplifies racial disparities that are deeply rooted in other areas of public life. So we have a legacy going back to slavery. Um, There's great books out there like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander that look at this history. We have a legacy in this country of racism that's really embedded in every major area of public life, education, right? Brown v. Board of Education didn't end the inequality in our school system, but it was a critical reminder that even in the 1950s we had segregated schools. Um, We have similar um, major, major issues when it comes to housing, redlining in every major city. When it comes to employment, we know that employment discrimination continues to be a very real issue. Um, You know, certainly access to health care and and other areas of life. So those areas of institutionalized racism then get amplified by the criminal legal system. Why? Because let's just take drug sales. People who are poor, people who are, are immigrant, people of color are on average more likely to sell drugs in the open than drug sellers who are white who may do it behind closed doors. As a result, even without going so far as to allege intentional or explicit racism, simply because of structural factors and perhaps implicit racism, police are more likely to arrest people of color for drug sales than whites, even if whites are selling drugs at proportionately the same or more um, to their share of the population. And sure enough, what we see when we look at, at drugs as one example is that throughout recent American, modern American history, um, at every step of the system, there's a, a increase in the discrepancy. So African Americans are more likely to be arrested for drugs than whites. They're more likely to be charged, more likely to be held in jail, more likely to be convicted, more likely to be sentenced to prison. Uh, at every step of the way, we see these uh, racial disparities get amplified. And some of it is is you know very much structural and implicit rather than explicit racism. I don't think you need to accuse individual police officers or individual prosecutors of being racist, though, of course, many are. You know, on some level, we're all racist. So, I, I you know, I think that goes without saying. But these are structural outcomes. And if we're going to solve them, one of the things I think that was very was very much a healthy part of the conversation in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder was the need to be really intentional about responding to this legacy. It is not enough to be race neutral, to pretend that because Obama was elected president, we now live in a post-racial United States. You know, one of my um, kind of intellectual heroes, uh, Angela Davis, who's written so much about the criminal legal system and racism in this country, I think, says it very well, which is it, it. it's not enough to say, I'm not racist. We have to be proactively anti-racist if we're going to undo the legacy, if we're going to bring justice back into our criminal legal system.
0: One point I really want to, I mean, a lot of points, but one point I really want to call out there is that idea of structural, of systemic. I think a lot of times here in the U.S. or the way we approach things is it's a very individualistic society. And when, you know, when I was listening to you earlier and thinking about, um the way we respond to each other, there's a lot of, um, well, it's someone's personal responsibility, but if the system is structured in a way that is, um, going to create unfairness, then it's going to be harder for some people to overcome that. And so I also appreciate the fact that this center is going to be getting at some of those systemic issues.
1: I know that there are people, uh, a good friend of mine, for example, who, whose mother was incarcerated with my mother and who ended up incarcerated with my father, um, He's African-American, I'm white. And when I first went to visit him in my father's prison, I was a freshman at Yale. And I went into the conversation, this is decades ago, very much with the lens of, look, this is structural. I'm white, you're black. I'm, you know, born in the U.S., you're an immigrant. I was raised by an upper middle class family. You were raised by a working grandmother. Um, You know, I I looked at it and sort of said, "You, you didn't have a chance. Look at these statistics. And he said to his credit, yeah, all those statistics may be true, but I made choices. And I made bad choices. And I have to take responsibility for that. And I think we were both right. And what I came away from that, that conversation, and he's still a dear friend and, and someone who I, who I talk with and reflect on life with on a regular basis. And what I came away from that conversation and really that lifelong friendship with, you know, on this issue is that we want to make sure as a society that people are in an environment where they have the right choices to make. And all too often, you know, people who look like me or people who go to private, you know, elite private schools, um, you know, they're making choices in an environment that's like a bowling alley with bumpers, you know, where you can bounce off the walls a little bit and it's safe. And you get second and third and fourth chances. And people like my friend Lorenzo don't get those second chances. It doesn't mean that they didn't make bad choices or that there shouldn't be responsibility and accountability when they do. But, you know, how many kids on Harvard's campus or Stanford's campus, or University of Chicago campus are doing illegal drugs. And meanwhile, the the university police, they're not going into dorms. They're not arresting people for date rape or for underage drinking or cocaine. They're off on the other side of town arresting mostly people of color for similar crimes. And so I think we need to look at like, yes, individual accountability, and yes, individual decision-making, and yes, individual responsibility. And yes, structural change to ensure that more young people are in an environment where they have good choices to make.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. And I do want to ask, given your experience on the political side of the spectrum, is that a space you want to enter into again at some point in your future, too soon, or anything you want to say about that?
1: What's the old saying? You may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. Right. Um, (laughs) I, I think on some level, all of us are political creatures, we're all impacted by political decisions, and even our lifestyle choices are political. Do you buy an electric vehicle? Do you go vegan? You know, all of these are things, whether directly involved in electoral politics or not, that have real political implications for the world we live in. And um, I'm someone who's always been explicitly and intentionally interested in politics. Um, I was never particularly interested in running for office until I did. It wasn't something I set out to do. It was really circumstantial. Um, and so when I look to the future, I say, I want to continue doing work that is meaningful to me and to my community that makes an impact. And if the circumstances align in a way like they did in 2019 where there seems like a real opportunity for somebody who is principled like I am to do work in elected office, I'm more than happy to serve again. And um, you know it really is going to come down to whether I or not, Um, There's an environment in which I can do the work that that I'm passionate about with integrity. Uh, It's disappointing to see how many of our elected officials care more about their own career and, you know, getting promoted from mayor to senator or getting promoted from state assembly to state senate or whatever it may be um, than they do about the actual issues or their actual constituents. And, um, you know, I know people who, as soon as they win their election, they're, creating an exploratory committee for the next office up the ladder. And and that's normal, sadly. That's not who I want to be. And, um, you know, I also don't want to be the kind of politician that's following polls and saying what, you know, our mayor said defund the police and we're redirecting $120 million from the police budget. And now she's complaining we don't have enough money for the police. So I, I don't know if that's, you know, just dishonest or if it's short-sighted or if it's ignorant or, uh, you know, smoke and mirrors, but... I think we all deserve elected officials who have integrity, even in the face of pressure from the polls. And um, that's the only kind of elected official I'll ever be. Um, so if and when the circumstances align for me to do that kind of work, um, I'll certainly consider it. And in the meantime, I'm thrilled to be at a institution that welcomes critical thinking and deep intellectual engagement with issues that are so important to public life.
0: Thank you to my guest, Chesa Boudin, founding executive director of the newly created Criminal Law and Justice Center at UC Berkeley School of Law. You can follow the new center on Instagram or Twitter at BerkeleyLawCLJC. This has been part two of my interview with Chasa Boudin. You can hear part one at newsincontext.net. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing News in Context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.